This is Reclaiming Jane, an Austin podcast for fans on the margins. I'm Emily Davis-Hale. And I'm Lauren Weathers. And today we're reading chapters one through five of Sense and Sensibility, looking at it through the lens of power. first episode of Reclaiming Jane. We're thrilled to be here. We hope you're excited too. It is incredible to us that people would even want to listen to this podcast other than us. So we're really excited that- Much less express excitement about it. Exactly. So we're really happy to be officially premiering this new podcast. Yes. So to expand a little bit on what we said in our trailer, this is a podcast to look at all of the things that don't get talked about in your typical Jane Austen fan circles. Uh, so we want to look at basically all the different aspects of identity and society, uh, anything we're feeling like talking about, anything you guys want to hear about. We want this to be something that's collaborative. So we have things that we definitely want to talk about. But as we continue to grow our listenership and as we continue to build this as a community we want to hear from the listeners as well for what they would like to hear and what they'd like to hear us discuss um and we for one have both had experience with feeling as though there's not a place for us in fandom especially in period piece fandom or regency fandom and so we're really excited to be able to create a space however small for other people who might have felt the same way as us and we each have different areas of sort of interest and expertise, which we're each bringing to this. Uh, so I have more of an interest in just straight up history and especially social history, being a linguistic anthropologist that definitely feeds into my extracurricular activities. Nerd. <laughs> uh, look who's talking. Um, so the other nerd on this podcast is somebody who has two degrees in English literature because one wasn't enough. Um, so I have an undergraduate degree in English and Spanish literature and then got a master's degree in English. And I'm also very excited to eventually talk about film adaptations because like the overachiever that I was and am, I also got a minor in film studies. So just talking about all of pop culture really pretentious in pretentious ways is basically what I got degrees in. So I'm very excited to talk about this. And then outside of school, you just yell about pop culture in non-pretentious ways. Yes, I, I yell a lot on Twitter. <laughs> so for a very special treat, uh, I went through our text history oh, no. today. <laughs> and I found, if I could find my phone, I found the text that started it all. Was this the one that started with, okay, hear me out? Because I feel like a lot of my texts start like that. <laughs> they do. Oh, God. So August 2nd from Lauren. Okay, so, hear me out. We should start a Jane Austen podcast. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> Imagine a podcast where we have historical knowledge and social justice and deep pop culture knowledge all applied to Jane Austen. It would be, all caps, awesome. <laughs> I'm so glad that we're making it happen. This has been a labor of love for the last few months. This is certainly one of the bright spots in um, the hellscape that has been 2020 for me. Absolutely. And by the time this episode premieres, we will be only two weeks away from ending 2020, which I will be even more excited about. Yes. All right. Now that we've got, you know, a little more introduction mm -hmm. to the podcast, uh, let's jump into the first of what will be a regular segment, Woo. our 30 second recaps. Oh, God. Okay. 
All right, so the concept of the 30 second recap is pretty straightforward. Each of us will have 30 seconds on the clock to go over what happened in the segment that we're talking about today. So chapters one through five of Sense and Sensibility. I'm gonna pull out a timer. Lauren, would you like to go first? Yes, I think. Don't sound so uncertain. I can go first if you want me to. I would like to go first. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. Go. Okay, so chapters one through five, Sense and Sensibility, we're introduced to the Dashwoods, um, who are three sisters, Eleanor, Marianne, and the other one, and then their mother, um, who are living in a fantastic place that they love, except for when their father dies, they're going to have to move because uh, of Regents of England. Um, and they have an older brother from a different marriage um, who is married to... Oh my god, did it go by that fast? He's married to somebody awful. They have to move, and then they have to go to somewhere else, and it sucks. Bye. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> wow. All right. Oh, that was terrible. That's going to get better, I promise. Okay. Emily, are you ready? No, but I'll do it anyway. Okay. Please do better than me, because otherwise people won't know what's happening in these okay. five chapters. All right. On your marks. Get set. Go. All right. So two old white men die in rapid succession, leaving their estate and fortune to the oldest son of this family, uh, who doesn't want to help out his younger half-sisters and his stepmother. So they all end up uh, high-class poor uh, and are forced to move, forced to move into a cottage that another distant family member has offered them. Impressive. Thank you. That was much better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I was thinking of in bed last night was, okay, old white men die. They leave their fortune. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much the gist of it. It is. That's why it was my recap. Yep. <laughs> All right. So let's talk a little bit about the historical context of what's going on here. Mm -hmm. So sense and sensibility, which I have to very carefully enunciate every time I say it. So difficult. It was published in 1811, but is believed to have been written between 1795 to 97, uh, when Jane Austen was late teens, early 20s, basically. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting uh, looking at some of the ways that it had been interpreted, the book had been interpreted, when it was first published. So early reviews tended to characterize it as being sort of a moral lesson, uh, favoring Eleanor's, the eldest daughter's, more stable temperament over her sister Marianne's flightier uh, tendencies towards romanticizing. It was also very notably contrasted with what was popular uh, in the contemporary period, which is epistolary fiction. For those of you who might not be familiar with the genre, epistolary fiction is a story told through letters, basically. But essentially what the whole premise boils down to is the priority of men and their positions in families, essentially. And that's pretty clearly illustrated here. In general, the mid-1790s all the way up through that first decade of the 1800s, it was really a very rapidly changing world, kind of what like what we've seen in the last few decades. There were multiple revolutions. Uh, 
the impacts of the American Revolution were certainly being felt strongly, the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, um, quite a few other rebel movements in various areas in the world. There was a boom in colonialism, especially by England. Um, <laughs> they were making inroads into India uh, and basically just, you know, taking what they could get wherever they could. But there Take what you get, give nothing back. <laughs> Sorry, pop culture references are hard to turn off. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're doing this. <laughs> but in addition to colonialism in the Western world, there was a tendency toward industry that was just getting its start. So the cotton gin had been patented in the 1790s. So that was mechanizing the production of cotton products. Medicine was advancing as new discoveries were made. And then, of course, there were famous movements in philosophy and in art, as well as a huge variety of movements in favor of abolition. So there's a lot going on in the world, but the basic foundation of this upper class English society was still very much revolving around landowning men and the money they had or did not have. And so they absolutely wielded the power in this particular context. But we get to look at some ways that maybe their power wasn't absolute, or at least there were influences on their power that they might or might not have been completely aware of. That sounds like an excellent segue into talking about the chapters themselves. Yes, let's do it. Um, so if we can, let's talk about Fanny and how much I hate her. Um. <laughs> For the record, when I finished reading that chapter, I sent Lauren a text that just said... <laughs> Fanny is a heinous bitch. Yep. <laughs> I was about to go back into our text thread and see exactly what it was that you sent, but I'm glad that you know that from memory. I, because I have not stopped thinking about it since that moment. I mean, she's truly awful. <laughs> she is. Um, so ostensibly, John Dashwood here, the eldest and only son of the late Mr. Dashwood, has inherited Norland Estate. He's inherited all the fortune except for what had been um, practically settled upon his younger sisters. Yeah, and Fanny is, um, how would like to describe her other than heinous bitch? She is smart enough to understand how to wield the very little power that she does have. Um, so the entirety of one of the chapters in this very opening early section of Sense and Sensibility is literally just a conversation between Fanny and John over how much support financially they're going to give his sisters and, um, not necessarily his stepmother, but his half-sisters. And he progressively goes from saying, well, we'll give them 3,000 pounds each to, well, we can help them out maybe every now and again. We'll give them the furniture that's owed to them in the will and we'll help them find a place to live maybe. And that's, that's about it. Um, because Fanny just keeps working away at him and working away to make sure that most of the money is kept for them and for their son rather than being given to these people who she clearly has no feelings for. And even though she doesn't actually have any power to make this decision, she is the one making the decisions in this relationship. And he has no idea that he's being manipulated behind the scenes, probably far more than what we see in just this one chapter. And there's a lot of 
in this conversation very explicit appeals to uh, what I noted down as being the luxury of placing one's own concerns above all else, Mm -hmm. as well as the privilege of thinking of yourself as having something taken away from you rather than framing it as just a generous act or something that you ought to do as a good person. Exactly. And one of the notes that I had written down as well is that she's acting in her own self-interest, but she's also taking power away from other women in doing so, because if they had had that extra financial support, they would have had more power just in general, power to choose where they like to live, more power in securing a match for themselves because finances were such a big part of that, especially back then. And she's knowingly taking that away from them and does not care at all. Yeah, this is a period, an area where the dowry is relevant. So the dowry would be the money, the assets, any resources that a wife brings to a marriage. In other times, in other places, there would be the reverse of that, the bride price in which the husband's family would provide assets to the wife's family. Uh, That is definitely not the case here. To make oneself an attractive match in the Regency world, you needed to be bringing something to the table if you were a lady. They weren't just going to take you in. And this is also where overt versus more subversive forms and expressions of power. And one of the things that gets me when I'm reading period piece fiction or um, really any type of historical work is when we're talking about who has power and who doesn't, who's not on the page who also doesn't have power. That's one of the things that I struggle with when I read things like this is thinking about, oh, well, where would I be when um, if I were to put myself in the situation? And the answer is almost always either non-existent or <laughs> not, um, not even close to the social realm of these characters. So they want to, they have relative power. So relative to the people in their social circle, you know, they've been knocked down a few pegs. They don't have as much power. And relative to men especially, they really don't have any power at all. But relative to uh, the people who they employ as maids or servants or relative to the people who were in the British Empire as slaves, they have a lot more power. Um, And that's one of the things that I always think about as a person of color who's reading these things is I can imagine sometimes it's difficult to empathize with these characters if you're reading this as somebody who's black or brown where they're talking about how woe is me, my life is awful, thinking about, okay, well, where would I have been in 1811 or 1790 or what have you? Uh, Probably worse off. One of the other things that stood out to me was, um, you know, in chapter four, we're looking at the potential match between Eleanor and Edward as well, and who has the power to declare their feelings for who and make their intentions known and who can really move that forward, because Eleanor has no power or way whatsoever to really declare her feelings for Edward in a way that's like socially acceptable and she has too much sense to be able to break societal convention. Marianne on the other hand who has more of the sensibility side of things would just say you know throw yourself at his feet and declare your love and your passion. She's very much like the romance novel times a thousand end of things whereas Eleanor is a little bit more conventional and understands where her power lies and also understands when she can and cannot use it. And this is one of the instances where she can't. So now that you've brought up those terms that we find in the title of the sense and the sensibility, would you expand a little bit on what those mean? I would love to. 
So another thing about being an English major is that I took a whole seminar on Austin back in undergrad. And so I still have some of my notes from class, but I also have my beautiful academic edition of Sense and Sensibility that has work that other scholars did, not me, to define these terms. I'm really just quoting what's in this book and doing none of the actual work. But sensibility itself was kind of a social movement at the time that this was published and written. So there was um, more of a movement that was trying to improve both male and female manners. So there was both a liability and a virtue to be sensible. And we define sensible in a different way in 2020 than they did in that time. So sensibility was um, closer to sentimental today. So if you think about somebody who's really sentimental, that's really what sensibility was in Jane Austen's time. I've always understood sensibility as being like a very practical person. Exactly. Which is kind of the opposite of what it is here. It is the exact opposite. And I think if you don't know that cultural context, it can be really confusing when they're talking about sensibility in the book because Marianne isn't maybe our definition of sensible, but she is the Regency era definition of sensible because it was this whole cultural movement about talking about what male manners should be and what female manners should be and all this stuff. So sense was more male and was connected to like genius and learning and was more like how we would define sense in 2020. And then sensibility was considered more female and it was more modesty, truth and emotion. So it was considered a virtue to be connected with your emotions and to feel really deeply. And um, so when you see Marianne kind of like acting as though it's the end of the world over the, the smallest thing, because she feels so deeply that was considered a virtue. But on the flip side, because it was also considered female, too much of it wasn't considered great either because we can't have anything. So sensibility was kind of considered a virtue, but also if you had too much of it and you kind of flip the dial, not flip the dial, but turn the dial too much to the left, we'll say, then it was now considered something that was, oh, well, you know, silly women that can't really control their emotions, blah, 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 blah. That's so fascinating to me that, I mean, also, I'm a linguist, so I'm sitting here going, yes, words changing meaning. I love it. <laughs> but that's, I'm so glad to have that context now because I, like a lot of people, went into this thinking, what's the difference? Sense and sensibility. Exactly. <laughs> Why? And one thing, too, is that notice in the title, it's not sense or sensibility. It's sense and sensibility. Um, so I think even in the title, Austin's kind of implying that you need both, you need a balance and you see that with Eleanor and Marianne as well. And I think we'll see that play out throughout the book. It's not choosing between the two. It's figuring out what that balance is. One other thing that I thought was really interesting was that, um, most women authors wrote prefaces that were kind of apologizing for publishing and being immodest and kind of stepping out of their, their sphere as women, because, you know, Women were meant to be confined to the home and doing anything in the public sphere was meant for men, including publishing, even though nobody had to see her face. Um, Austin refused um, because that was not how she rolled. And if she also um, got letters from rude publishers, she would sign it as Mrs. Ashton Dennis, initials M-A-D. So (laughs) (laughs) we stand an icon. We stand. Yeah, so it's no surprise that Jane Austen wrote somebody like Lizzie Bennet because um, she had no time for the bullshit. I love it. Yeah. That's great. I think the last thing I want to say about like where the theme shows up in the section that we read is you can see how power is evident even in like, the opening sentence of the chapter, so or of the book even. So the very first sentence is, the family of Dashwood had long been settled in Sussex, and for a family to have been long settled somewhere, that implies that you have money to have been settled in one place for however 
long a time long means, whether for generations or for a few decades, what have you. It means you had enough money to sit there and to be still. And then that's just reinforced by the second one where it says, you know, their estate was large and the residence was at Norland Park in the center of their property where, for many generations, they lived in so respectable a manner as to engage the general good opinion of their surrounding acquaintance. So they have financial power because they've been able to stay there for generations, but they also have societal power because they have the goodwill of the other people who are surrounding them. So I, and it's so cool to me seeing how, if you do close reading, like how often anything that you choose can really come up because this book is just so rich with material that you can find pretty much anything. But I'm, I'm so glad that we chose power as the first theme that we want to read through because I think it's so evident in these first five chapters and you see it in so many different places, whether it's just in the way that the family has been settled at Norland Park or whether it's in the way that Fanny kind of subtly manipulates her husband or in the power that they do or don't have in potential romantic attachments. It shows up everywhere. Yeah, on the subject of power and romantic attachments, one thing that I made a lot of notes about while reading uh, was during this whole exchange between Eleanor and Marianne about Edward and his availability or his potential feelings or Eleanor's potential feelings, Marianne leans very heavily on what seems to me to be kind of the power of imagination, mm. uh, like manifesting these kind of romantic attachments. Whereas Eleanor doesn't seem to put much stock, if any, in that. And of course, that goes back to their characterizations as Eleanor having sense, Marianne having sensibility. Mm -hmm. I don't, it was just really fascinating to me to see that manifestation of power as a concept coming through in the book. And it also seemed to me uh, that Marianne and their mother sort of entertaining these kind of fantasies reads almost as an attempt to have power in a situation where they really have none. Ooh, yeah, I like that. I think that I, yeah, talking about the power of imagination, because even if I can't control my situation, I can control what I think of and what I dream of. And in that place, I have power. Yeah, I never thought about it that way. I think perhaps the most indicative sentence of that concept of the power of imagination is Eleanor reflecting on Marianne having said, oh, if you talk about him any more nicely, I won't even think that he's ugly anymore. <laughs> and, and Eleanor reflects, she knew that what Marianne and her mother conjectured one moment, they believed the next, that with them, to wish was to hope, and to hope was to expect. Yeah. I mean, but also, who among us hasn't, like, decided that their friend's boyfriend was cute just because they talk about them so often? It's like, oh, okay, yeah. fine, I guess he's, like, a little bit good-looking. The power of suggestion. The power of suggestion. And that also, um, whatever they conjecture they believe to be true, it just made, made me think of, like, when you were in middle school or high school and somebody brings out the possibility like oh but what if and then you just let your imagination run away with you and all of a sudden that's true Wait, usually you doing that in middle school no <laughs> <laughs> i was trying to make it seem like i did but if you're gonna call me out on that i mean that's <laughs> fine um no but I, I i was thinking about especially in middle school when you would just decide that like somebody had a crush on someone else and then you would then decide to make their every action fit into that idea about them that you had like oh well he looked at her for like two seconds longer than he looked at Susie Q so oh my god he must have a crush on you and just like everything that that person now does is 
twisted to fit whatever you have in your mind because you've decided to believe that. That's that's specifically what I was thinking of. I don't do that anymore, but do I make myself believe other things? Absolutely. Like I make myself believe that Little Mix will tour in America, even though it will never happen. Actually, now that you bring up Little Mix, I was thinking this, that's a great segue to the pop culture aspect. <laughs> yes, it especially is. Especially this power of imagination and making things fit into what you've decided the world was going to be. It's been really fascinating to me to watch fans of a thing foist their interpretations on creators Mm, and this mm -hmm. happens to more or less extent depending on the kind of fandom and uh who's you know the demographics of the fandom as well as how communicative creators are on various social media platforms basically how much access do fans have to creators Mm -hmm. and are they actually exerting influence or are we just gonna get some queer baiting oh god yeah that is um a really perfect link into the um pop culture connection that i was really excited about for this um was to kind of talk about how you can draw a link between what current fandom looks like and the difference between like sense and sensibility so the difference between being a fan of something and being a stan of something please elaborate because i've never understood the difference i don't know what a stan is help me lauren i am happy to um because lauren one kenobi (laughs) let's see if this is the only time i talk about this on this podcast probably not likely not um because i am a little mix fan who lives in the united states the only way that i can find any information about this band is through twitter um because their label refuses to promote them here and it makes me upset so I have been adjacent to Stan Twitter for quite some time now. So I am unfortunately well-versed in what it looks like, despite the fact that I am 27 years old. So being a fan of something is a little bit more casual. So you can say that you're a fan of something. So let's say like I'm a Marvel fan and I go watch the movies, but I'm not like engaging in a ton of discourse online. I don't buy up merch as soon as it goes on sale like i'm a casual fan i enjoy it i can name all the characters for you you know i know who iron man and captain america are and i probably went to go see the movie like opening weekend but it's not my full identity a stan on the other hand there's a debate on like where the term came from so you as a linguist would probably appreciate that so some people think that it was like a combination of like stalker and fan and they just put it together to make stan other people think that it comes from the eminem song that was called stan which would be even more funny to me because that was meant to be a cautionary tale about how you shouldn't idolize people to the point of like stalking them and then eventually like driving off of a bridge. Yeah, listen to the song Stan by Eminem. You don't you don't want to be Stan. <laughs> That's not what you want to be. So it's really funny to me that we use Stan as a verb now because that was not meant to be something to live up to. Um it's really interesting. My personal theory, having absolutely no context Mm -hmm. on any of this, uh, would be that it would probably be the combination of stalker and fan, but that, uh, I guess, what we would call a popular etymology Mm -hmm. of linking it to the Eminem song is really, really fascinating. Yeah. And one of the reasons that it makes me think of the difference between sense and sensibility is because being a stan is usually linked to excess in some way, kind of like sensibility is feeling things really deeply and being very connected with your emotions. I think if you're a stan of something, you have a really deep emotional connection to whatever it is that you are a fan of and that you love so much to the point where you sometimes feel as though you have ownership of it, which goes back again to like the relationship that fans have with creators. But there's also a really 
interesting power balance as well. So like thinking about sense and sensibility, but also thinking about power. If you are standing a person, because people feel so deeply about this, there's this really interesting power balance between the two because people will do anything for like a notice from the person that they stand. So you'll see, I remember when One Direction was a thing, and I see this sometimes with BTS too. Let me edit that because if there are any One Direction fans that are listening to this, they're going to be very upset with me and say One Direction is still a thing. When One Direction was not on hiatus, I'm so sorry, Directioners, I would see in the tweets of any of the four or five members, like notice me times one, notice me times two, notice me times three from the same account, just like posting the same tweet over and over and over again. And I remember seeing one person, she finally got a reply from Louis Tomlinson. She quote tweeted the reply. And you also will usually see people like swamp the replies of the tweet that got the response of the like with like congratulations, because everybody realizes that like, you try and get a notice from your fave, you try and get a reply and you'll put like in your Twitter bio most of the time, like was noticed like three times by like Louis Tomlinson on like X date. It's elaborate. But this fan in particular had like taped like a lollipop or something to her wall. And it said like, I'm allowed to like finally eat this lollipop when like Louis Tomlinson notices me. And it had been there for like three years. And she was like, I can finally take it down. But it's that level of adoration and commitment that you see from stands, which means that if their idols do anything, like if they say jump, they'll say how high. However, on the flip side, because like media networks and record labels and all these other corporate organizations have realized how much power these fans have when there's millions of them together. I've noticed like this pivot between going more towards like fan voted things and fan engagement because I know it drives advertising revenue or it drives sales. And so you'll see a lot more like fan voted awards at like the AMAs or things like that because they know, for example, if you nominate BTS for anything, there's going to be millions of people who are now engaging with whatever your content is. And so the pop stars or whoever are also really dependent on fans to vote for them for these awards that they can advance for their career to buy their their songs and their tour bundles and all this kind of stuff just as the fans kind of depend on them as well for that next hit of dopamine because I like I'll see people say like oh I'm bored they haven't done anything in like a week what am I supposed to be doing any anything else you could do a lot of things yeah, that's definitely not unique to our social media fan Mm-mm. culture either. I mean, it happened with Beatlemania. I know it happened with other forms of mass media in earlier centuries as well. Basically, if something could be widely distributed, there was going to be a fan base that it relied on for financial success. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of chicken and the egg, you know, did it succeed because it became a huge fan target right or did it become a huge fan target because it was a good product yeah and i guess to be more succinct because i tend to ramble about this just because it's so fascinating to me i think um like the idol or the um person who the group is standing has power over them just by virtue of um them being able to have such a an influence for better or for worse over like this large group of people. But at the same time, they also depend on them for, um, for sales, for awards, for all this other stuff. And there's this really interesting dynamic between the two of them, especially because the stands feel so deeply about everything. Um, which I, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing, but it comes back to like sensibility where it's like when it's in excess, 
what happens. I, I think it's great that people can feel so deeply about something. I think sometimes adults get away from that and we want to be emotionless and like, oh, we're jaded and we don't care, blah, blah, blah. But it's wonderful to be able to feel so deeply about something and to be so passionate about seeing your favorite band that you like burst into tears. Like, yeah, why not? Go, go on, go live your best life. Be happy. Like do whatever Enjoy, makes you happy. Please. Exactly. Um, and then the excess is when it comes to like um, hacking into an airport camera to watch One Direction. Oh. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That is legend. So yeah, that was that was my pop culture connection that I thought of was sense and sensibility, being a casual fan of something and enjoying it versus being a stand of something and hacking into an airport camera literally just to watch them sit at their gate. That that was it. I'm still processing that. <laughs> that was <laughs> wow. Just that one piece of information mm-hmm. <laughs> packed such a punch. Yeah. Yeah. With both One Direction and BTS, but BTS especially, it's if you gate Beatlemania Twitter. Humans have always been the same. Lit- always. People act like the BTS fandom especially is something new. I'm like, but it, do you guys, did you guys see people passing out when the Beatles showed up? Or like passing out when Michael Jackson like turned his head on stage? Like the man could literally just look at you and people would pass out. Like this is not new. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people have, we've always been programmed and maybe I'm getting too anthropological with this, Mm -hmm. but honestly, living in a big social group like we do and like we have done for centuries, for millennia, we find extreme joy in these things. We we have a lot of feelings and we got to put them somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so we find media that we enjoy and we put our efforts towards that. Yeah. And I think, too, I still see the connection these days to where, you know, in Jane Austen's time, sensibility was considered something that was more female. And today we still see like the excess of emotion being attributed to women, especially. Um, Oh, yeah. It's the teenage girl effect. Oh, it's a teenage girl effect and a healthy dose of just your regular old misogyny and toxic masculinity to where, you know, men are just as emotional. They're just not allowed to show it. Mm hmm. Let men have feelings. Let men have feelings, feelings 2020. violence. <laughs> Please. For the good of everyone. Mm-hmm. But it just makes me think about how sensibility is still considered mostly female today. Sensibility, sentimentality, whatever you want to call it. It's still mostly women. And even though it's feeling deeply, I think, could and should be considered a virtue, it's still looked down upon. Like, uh, you care about things. How dare you? Well, I think it's perceived also as a, a lack of self-control. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Not having power over your own emotions. Women are too emotional. Exactly. And it just bursts out. Okay, so Emily, what are your final takeaways from this first section of Sense and Sensibility? I think my final takeaways have to do with the socially circumscribed definitions of power who is allowed to have it and to wield it publicly Mm. and who has to be more subtle about it. What about you, Lauren? What's, what's your takeaway? My final takeaway is that Fanny sucks. Um, Not really. My takeaway is that Fanny's actually very intelligent. I just don't like the way in which she's wielding her intelligence. I think um, similar to you, my takeaway is thinking about who has power and in what way And then who does power make visible, I think is my biggest takeaway. So who has visibility either 
in the public sphere or even in the private sphere because you think about how you know servants or children or whoever are meant to be like seen and not heard or sometimes not even seen and they mentioned at one point that um they were taking what is it like two girls and a boy with them to like to set up the house ahead of time who you know are never named so thinking about who power makes visible who power runs invisible and whose stories get to be told i think is what i take away from this section Thank you so much for joining us for this premiere episode of Reclaiming Jane. Episode 2 will be released on December 30th, when we'll be looking at Sense and Sensibility chapters 6 through 10 through the lens of gender. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Reclaiming Jane. Visit our website, reclaimingjanepod.com. And if you would like to follow us on Twitter in time for a live tweet of Bridgerton on December 25th, Although it is not necessarily related to Jane Austen itself, we were not going to miss the opportunity to talk about a fantastic, diverse period piece, so we'll be live tweeting from our Reclaiming Jane Twitter account the first few episodes of Bridgerton if you would like to join for that. Reclaiming Jane is produced and co-hosted by Lauren Weathers and Emily Davis-Hale. Our music is by Natasha Bundy. We'll see you next time. too soon to bring up supernatural (laughs) oh no (laughs) so we are recording this right after destiel became canon in case you're wondering why we're laughing (laughs) i honestly thought that we had left supernatural in like 2013 but i forgot how big of a fandom it was and i always forget that it's still going yeah i was never in supernatural fandom nor was i but i witnessed people who were because and we were on Tumblr in 2012. <laughs> we were on Tumblr in 2012. <laughs> Super Hulock will never die. For better and for worse. Mostly for worse. We were on Tumblr in 2012. Oh,